If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Robert the Bruce's landmark victory over the English at the Battle of Bannockburn secured his place as a hero in the annals of Scottish history. But how much do you know about the 1314 clash? In today's episode, public historian Helen Carr talks Rachel Dinning through the story of the battle and its aftermath in Scotland, England and beyond. So welcome, Helen, to the History Extra podcast. It's great to have you. Today we are talking about the Battle of Bannockburn, which took place in June 1314 and was a pivotal moment in the First War of Scottish Independence. So I thought we could start with you setting the scene a bit and providing a bit of background context. So would you mind explaining maybe a few of the factors that led to the battle? Okay, sure. I mean, Goodness, it is. There's a lot of context behind this, but I'm going to try and go through it as quickly as possible. But it really began in 1286 on a stormy night when Alexander III, the Scottish king, was rode out of Edinburgh Castle to go and visit his new queen for a night of passion. And he fell off a cliff in the darkness and it was found the next day lying next to the body of his horse with a broken neck. And this was problematic because he had left no heir except for his granddaughter, the seven-year-old Margaret, the maid of Norway. So it was planned that she would marry the future king, Edward II of England, his father Edward I being on the throne at the time. And therefore that would unite the crowns in this sort of middle age period rather than much later in the 18th century. But she actually died on the way to take up the throne, which left Scotland with absolutely no monarch. And at this point, England and Scotland had really survived almost in a century of complete peace and and the border was almost redundant because northern communities were really a mix of Scottish and English people all getting along fabulously. So Edward I was called upon to, to arbitrate the situation and it was up to him to land on the best candidate for the King of Scotland, with the main competition being between John Balliol, who was a distant relation to the first king, Edward David I of Scotland, and Robert the Bruce Senior, so the, the grandfather of the Robert the Bruce we're going to talk about, who was the Earl of Carrick, and he had served on the borders as well, manning Carlisle and, and Cumberland. So Edward I uses this as an opportunity. He was a real opportunist as a king, and he wanted to exert more authority in Scotland than he previously had. But he had obviously demonstrated that elsewhere, for example, with Wales, which he had conquered. So he he stepped in here, but he wanted to exert control really 
by saying, well, fine, I'll do this, but I want to do it in, in the manner as a feudal overlord of Scotland. So he was saying, I will make this decision for you. I will be part of this negotiation process, but I want to be the feudal overlord of this country, which is something that the Scots, you know, it didn't really sit particularly well with most of them, but it was either that or a potential civil war in Scotland. So they agreed and John Balliol was chosen as king and he went on to do homage to Edward but the year it got really messy was in, in 1294 because Philip IV of France declared Gascony forfeit to the French. So England went to war with France over Gascony. But the Scots also went into an alliance with the French against the English, named the Old Alliance. And that was really an attempt to wriggle out from underneath Edward I's overlordship. And so up until this point, Edward had really just been a political opportunist. So he hadn't really intended to go and conquer Scotland because it had always had a king, they'd had a good relationship. But when he discovered that John Balliol had gone behind his back and allied with the French, he was furious and he quickly marched on Scotland and took Berwick, making an example of the town and allegedly killing around 11,000 men for trying to defend it. And it was there that he set up his own government, claiming that Scotland would be now fully under English rule and he established there a lieutenant and a treasurer. And he believed that Scotland was therefore conquered and he went off back to France. But of course it wasn't. There was a few uprisings here and there, but it was the battle at the Battle of Dunbar that followed, which was an English victory, that John Balliol was caught. He was publicly humiliated and he was stripped of office with his arms being literally taken from his tabard. And he was given a, a nickname in history as Tomb Tabard, which is this sort of very embarrassing, insulting name that he was somebody who was ritually humiliated. So after this, with English presence in Scotland, there were lots of rebellions that flared up across the country and it was almost constant. Obviously, the most famous one being led by William Wallace and Andrew Murray, who pushed back against English authorities in Scotland, most famously with Wallace allegedly murdering Hugh Cressingham, who was the treasurer, and using his skin as the sheath for his sword, which I'm not entirely sure how true that would be. But this rising was most particularly famous because it resulted in the Battle of Stirling Bridge, which was the Scottish victory that was obviously the main battle in then the movie Braveheart. But then, unfortunately for William Wallace and Andrew Murray, it did actually result with Edward I marching up to Scotland and the Battle of Falkirk, which was an English victory, which ended up eventually in Wallace's capture and death. So going to Robert the Bruce, who was obviously the victor of the battle, we're going to talk about Bannockburn, he was at this point very much in the periphery. He was the grandson of the original Robert the Bruce, who was a candidate to the throne at the time of Balliol's accession. But he changed sides more than once. And in 1302, he submitted to Edward I. But it's important to say he was a landowner in England. And at this point, much of the Scottish nobility and the English nobility were very mixed. So it was really a case of allegiance, not ethnicity. And the border at this point was a very political boundary. It wasn't an ethnic or even a linguistic boundary. You know, the division of loyalties at the outbreak of war were numerous, driven by mostly personal interest. It's like voting Labour or voting Conservative almost comparatively in this period. You know, so for example, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between somebody who was fighting for Scotland or somebody who's fighting for England. So, you know, a Northern Lord named Robert de Ross, he actually chose to create a, a password so he would know who he stumbled across when he was travelling across his lands. And the password was tabard. The point is you wouldn't be able to tell somebody by their dialect. 
So you had to have these ways of working out who was on your side. So that, I think, is a really important point to establish. At this point, that that whole area of the far north of England, Berwick, and into Scotland, it was a really mixed community. So rather than thinking England versus Scotland, it's a really, that would be a misnomer to think of it like that. So Robert the, the Bruce, like Edward, I think at this point, was a bit more of an opportunist than a patriot. He didn't really set his sights on the crown of Scotland, but it, it sort of went that way after he found himself in a difficult position in a church in Dumfries, in Greyfriars Church, because he was inside the church with his leading rival, John Common, and it resulted in Robert the Bruce stabbing Common and murdering him. So with his main rival dead and the potential for rebellion in Scotland, Robert the Bruce decided at this point he was going to go for gold and he was he was going to go for the role of king. And so he had himself crowned at Schoon, which is the traditional site of Scottish coronation. And he tried to reclaim Scotland. And firstly, he had a dramatic fall. And at that point, his wife and his daughter and sisters were captured by Edward I and imprisoned. But then after Edward I's death, he he rose up again and he set about trying to reclaim English-held garrisons across the country, which he successfully did. And one of them was Stirling Castle, which is what neatly brings us to the Battle of Bannockburn. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Amazing. That provides an excellent overview of the background. (laughs) Thanks for that, Helen. And we'll come on a bit later on in the podcast to some of the legacy and how we think about it. I think it's really interesting. You mentioned the question of identity and how we think of, you know, how we might think of it today and how it actually was at the time in terms of the Gots versus the English. But let's talk a bit about the battle itself. So it happens at Stirling Castle. Let's maybe start with So maybe some of the tactics employed. Did Bannockburn see the emergence of any new forms of warfare or weaponry or military tactics? Certainly military tactics. The weapons and the warfare were quite similar to had been employed in other battles, such as the Battle of Falkirk with the spears, which is what makes the Battle of Bannockburn famous. So I think initially Robert the Bruce expected this to be a a defensive battle. So he didn't expect that he would be on the offensive because he blocked the route that the English were going to take, which was through the new park towards Stirling Castle by creating lots of potholes and traps. So the idea was that the cavalry would fall into these potholes and sort of collapse on the field before the battle could even begin. But it's it's the way he prepared his men contrary to be offensive that is what actually won the battle. So the Scottish army were predominantly infantry. They didn't really use cavalry at all and certainly not to the extent that the English did. So they had to be clever with their resources. So he trained his spearmen because the Scots would carry a spear and then they would probably carry an axe. They weren't really sort of wielding swords. I mean, some of them would have had this sort of weaponry, but it was largely axes and and spears. 
So Robert the Bruce trained his men for months nearby Stirling Castle in the Tor Wood, at which point he created them into this cohesive fighting machine known as Shiltrons. Now, Shiltrons were a sort of hedgehog formation of spears and axes, and the spears were pointed outwards and upwards, and they moved in unison. So they had initially been used as a defensive mechanism in previous battles, but what made this different is that Robert the Bruce employed them to be offensive. So they moved towards an oncoming army rather than stayed put. So that became the sort of key key decisive moment for in the Battle of Bannockburn is the positioning of these Shiltrons and how they were used. And this was an extremely well thought through and practised method. So much so that manpower wasn't necessarily on Robert the Bruce's agenda because allegedly men who tried to join the fight right up at the last minute, he turned away because they weren't men that he'd been practising with him. that had been you know, had learned how to move effectively within these martial devices. The English, however, very much went by their traditional form of warfare with the cavalry leading the charge, supported by the archers, followed by the infantry. The problem was, the clash was really, how Robert the Bruce employed the Shiltrons meant that the cavalry, the traditional cavalry charge of the English, was defunct. So we can say with some reasonable confidence that it was the strategies of Robert the Bruce that contributed to the success here. Contributed. It didn't win it entirely, but it contributed <laughs> would be the right word, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned a few just now, but did the English army under Edward II approach the battle with any tactical mistakes? <laughs> Many. So I think just putting slightly into context Edward II at this point, so his father had died in 1307 and right from the beginning Edward II had had a tricky reign. And during this time, that was when Robert the Bruce began to gather momentum and support in Scotland, which is, that's that's no coincidence. It's because Edward II just was not putting the manpower and the military expertise into managing what the situation in Scotland he was also very unpopular amongst his own nobility. So back in Westminster, there had been massive political unrest in England between Edward and predominantly his cousin Thomas of Lancaster, which resulted in the murder of Edward's favourite, Piers Gaveston. And because of that, certain noblemen refused to join Edward's northern army, including his cousin Thomas of Lancaster. And that is important because Lancaster was one of the largest landholders in the middle of northern England. You know, he had a lot of men and power behind him. Edward did bring some seasoned veterans of war who served under his father, for example, Henry Percy, the Percy family being very famously Wardens of the North, and Robert Clifford as well, who had served in Scotland with, with Edward I. But their expertise was just really not used and they didn't lead the men. So the English vanguard was led by the king's nephew, Gilbert de Clare. So the whole thing was really poorly planned and seemingly incredibly rushed with the military leaders coming up against each other all the time and arguing about what to do. So I think alongside Robert the Bruce's tactics being effective, what was also effective was unity and the morale with, amongst the men. So leadership was incredibly important. You know, Robert the Bruce chose the leaders he fought with, who he knew, who he trusted. And so there was a real difference in regard to unity right from the top. As someone who's studied this period, can you tell us about any interesting first-hand accounts that we have of the battle that particularly stuck out for you? So I think it's important to add that the battle itself was split over two days, which 
is sort of demonstrative of the messiness of the English at this point. So the main source we have is from Sir Thomas Gray, who is the father of another Thomas Gray, who is the author of a very famous chronicle called Scala Chronica. And it's from this account that we get quite a lot of information about the battle itself. So Thomas Gray was a, a knight. He was on horseback and he was captured on the first day of the battle. So the most famous part of the battle was the second day, the 24th of June, but the first day is the 23rd. And this is when the vanguard attacked the Scots outside the new park. And he claimed that this part of the battle took place while the rest of the English army were trying to find a place to camp, which suggests that the vanguard was so eager to fight, they just didn't really stick with the rest of the army. They just went off to look for, to pick a fight as soon as they landed. But importantly, without the support of the archers. And if one one thing you can say about medieval warfare and English medieval warfare is that the archers are very important and they are usually very, very good. And that's important because archers are the ones who could break up those shiltrons that were the defensive or offensive mechanism of the Scots. But I would say this is a particularly famous part of the battle that does get amalgamated with the second bit, but it was, it was on the first day because it features the ill-fated Henry de Bowen. So what happened was Henry de Bowen rode up to the top of the hill. He left, he left the rest of the army. He rode to the top of the hill and he could see the sort of patch of green outside the new park where the, where the woodland is. So he was ahead of the rest of the army and he spots Robert the Bruce speaking to his men on top of a, a small, a, a pony. Let's call it a pony. It was a smaller horse than his. And he was wearing a gold circlet, so he knew that this was Robert the Bruce. And he thought, this is my moment. Like, I can, I can end this battle and I can achieve complete military glory, which was very important to a 14th century knight. So he hurtles down the hill on his war horse, this huge steed sort of charging towards Robert the Bruce. And Robert the Bruce sits there. He can see him coming towards him. And he doesn't move. He sort of sits there and then he sort of slowly lets him come towards him, slowly moves up. And then he stands up in his stirrups and he swings his horse around and he takes down his mace on the top of Henry de Bourne's head and he kills him instantly. So this mounted knight on heavy horse is just killed like that, the snap of a finger, by the Scottish king. So you can imagine what that does for the morale of the Scottish army ahead of the major battle the next day. You've touched on this question already, but I was going to ask you anyway. For a medieval battle, Bannockburn was an unusually long one. It went on for two days. What were the possible reasons for that? Well, I think it was because the English were struggling to find their position. So much of the sort of afternoon of the first day, so after this conflict, which resulted in the death of Henry de, de Bowen, the vanguard actually followed, part of the vanguard followed Henry into battle. And there was a sort of big bloody skirmish, some were captured, some were killed, and then others managed to get back to the English army. But the English spent quite a lot of the time moving their army from the main road down onto the castland, which was this flat area of land, but it was also flanked by rivers. So you've got the River Forth, the Bannock Burn, so Burn is the name of a type of river, and then you've got another smaller river called the Pellstream Burn. So they're sort of positioned in between all of this, these water sources, and that's where they try and camp overnight. So they spend quite a lot of time trying to get their position right. And I think there was a lot of discontent between the sort of leading factors of the army, including the king, because they didn't really know what they were doing. They had no plan. And that was really their major issue, is they put themselves on a very difficult ground. 
They had no plan. They had already lost one of their leading members of nobility. And their their vanguard was being led by relatively inexperienced noblemen. So it was all going very wrong from the outset. So we've covered quite a lot of what happened on the first day of the battle. Can you take us through some of the key events of the second day? Yeah, so on the second day of the battle, it started very early in the morning. Okay, so this is literally as as the sun rose. The English were somewhat taken by surprise, but Robert the Bruce had been given the advice the night before that, you know, if you're going to win this, now is your moment. You have to strike while the iron's hot, so to speak. So he prepared his troops to strike the next day. He prepared to begin the battle literally just after the sun had risen. So what happened was originally there was an engagement between the archers. That's how the battle began. And obviously in England, the archers are particularly famous because they were equipped with the English longbow. So they did overpower the Scottish archers quite easily. But then there's this sort of romantic vision as the English cavalry are lining up and preparing for battle. They see, as the mist rises, they see the Scots kneeling. And Edward II goes, Yaha, you know, I've already won. They've already capitulated. You know, they know, they knew that they were going to lose to me. And he's told by St. Grim Dunferville that they're not actually kneeling to you, my lord. They're praying to God. So it's this romantic vision of, you know, the Scots kneeling in prayer and the, the mist rising from the ground. But whilst this is going on, the English cavalry are trying to align themselves. And what has happened, which happened in the first day of the battle, they had managed to get themselves in an appalling position. So they were a bit effectively trapped between these two streams. You've got the Bannockburn on one side and the Pell stream on the other side. So the, the cavalry couldn't create space in order to draw back and charge. And the thing with cavalry, you need to have a lot of space to really create that impact. When you've got these heavy horses hurtling forward, if they're sort of hurtling into each other, it's not going to have the same effect as it would on a wider, clearer battlefield. So they're trying to sort of align themselves and they're bumping into each other. And whilst this is going on, Robert the Bruce gets his men into three Shiltron formations. And it's really these... Shiltrons that are attributed to Bannockburn are particularly famous because it's the Shiltrons that won the Battle of Bannockburn. So what happens is you get three divisions of soldiers and they group together and they create these sort of hedgehog or armadillo type formations with their spears sticking out and their shields kind of covering each other. So they're effectively this incredibly powerful device that's effectively completely impenetrable. And it was described by chroniclers as a thick set hedge that a sword could not easily penetrate. So the English cavalry are seeing what's derailing in front of them. And Gilbert Clare, the Earl of Gloucester, who's leading the cavalry charge, he's in the vanguard, so the first line of attack. He has always been quite considered to be quite recklessly, you know, he, he recklessly charges into battle, charges into these shiltrons. But what he was actually trying to do is he was trying to break them up. So you could see his method of thinking. And yes, it was quite reckless, but he thought if he could just break up these devices that Robert the Bruce had, had put together, he could then scatter the men and that would, you know, enable the archers to come through and pick them off and it would enable the cavalry to cut them down. So he charged into the fray and he was the most famous casualty of the Battle of Bannockburn because he was killed on the spikes of these shiltrons almost instantly. And the, the sad thing is about Gilbert de Clare is he was the king's nephew. He was an incredibly important figure and he hadn't had time 
time or he had forgotten to wear his arms. So, you know, he had forgotten to wear his surcoat, so something to identify who he was. So the Scots had no idea and he was, in fact, butchered rather than actually taken prisoner. And he would have been an incredibly lucrative prisoner as well. So he had gone in, he had been killed almost instantly and the English were, at that point were already starting to feel, oh, my goodness, what is going on here? And these Shiltrons, they're coming forward at quite a significant pace. You know, they're marching forward and they're just really penning the English cavalry further and further back. And so they're going back into the infantry and you've got the archers behind them. So everything's a mess and it becomes this sort of bloodied mess as the Shiltrons start moving forward and they're penning the English in and they're attacking with their spears. So it becomes this, yeah, this kind of bloody melee that's taking place. And then what happens, the archers think, okay, we we can do something. They run round the back and they try to take out some of the Scots from the flank, from the side. And this is when Robert the Bruce deploys his only cavalry and they ride out and they sort of take out the archers. And I think many listeners, and I don't know if you've seen Braveheart and the Battle of Stirling at Braveheart, they kind of pinched some of the realities of the Battle of Bannockburn from this because there is a moment where you see... Mel Gibson tell his comrades to go take their horses and come in later and they come round and they take out the archers. That's basically what happened at Bannockburn, but they appropriate that for an earlier battle in the movie. So the English are then, you know, pushed into the water. Men are drowning, they're bloodied, they're drowning, and then many of them just start to flee. They start to run away. And at which point Edward is quite literally, the king of England is quite literally pulled from the field and he's told, we've got to go. And he is thrown onto his horse and they run hell for leather down towards the Dunbar Castle where he has an ally to then go on and take a ship down to Berwick. And he's chased by James Douglas, who is a pretty terrifying figure in Scottish history. He was nicknamed Black Douglas for being so merciless and cruel. So it's lucky for Edward that he was never caught. But the rest of the English army, many of them tried to escape. Some of them, according to one of the chroniclers on the Scottish border, the Lanacross chroniclers, said that some of them were captured by women and handed over. But it was, in essence, one of the greatest military defeats in English history with the massive loss of nobility because you had so many of the nobility as members of this cavalry charge and they were just destroyed or many also taken prisoner. What was the pivotal moment that the Scots were were like, we've got this, this is our victory now for you? So the pivotal moment in the battle was the minute that the English could not draw their cavalry back to then take charge. So that was the moment because of the position, because they were so squeezed in because of this poor choice of battleground. They couldn't literally, with the, the Shiltrons coming in towards them, They couldn't draw back, create space and then charge. And because of that, they were just pushed closer and closer and closer in together. And so they were effectively surrounded by these devices that Robert the Bruce had created, which was so effective. They were so effective, even they were borrowed by the later king, Edward III, in a battle against the Scots. So he used their own device against them and he won. So that is how useful they were as a tactic against cavalry. That's really interesting. Victim of geography as well as this new military tactic. Now, I think maybe let's move on to what happened after the battle. Firstly, how was the news of English defeat received in England and Scotland, respectively? Well, in England, it was a complete disaster. I mean, the outcome of Bannockburn was that much of the fighting nobility were either killed in combat or they were captured. So the loss of nobility at this 
battle-led chroniclers to compare it to the Battle of Courtrai in 1302, which was when the French lost what they called the Flower of France to a less experienced army of local militia. But in regard to nationwide governance, it was a complete disaster, particularly in the north, because it became a frontier zone. You know, they had lost members of the nobility who basically managed the north of England and protected it, and it became then open to Scottish raids. I also think it led to the eventual deposition of Edward II because it already deepened an extensive rift between Edward and the nobility in England. And it's likely that after Bannockburn, even Thomas of Lancaster, Edward's cousin, allied himself in some way with Robert the Bruce. Letters were found between them, apparently, later on to suggest that there might have been communication. But directly after the battle, Edward lost much of his authority and power at Westminster, and he was restrained by a series of ordinances, which were effectively rules about how he was allowed to act as king. But in Scotland, it allowed Robert the Bruce to create the Statute of Cambus Kenneth, which divided England and Scotland in removing cross-border landholding. So he, he disinherited people. And this determined that the remaining nobility who held land in Scotland, but were loyal to Edward II, would be stripped of all of their property in Scotland. So he really created this this definitive border. And as a result of that, families were split by allegiance. So, for example, a nobleman called Ingram de Umfreville, who fought at Bannockburn for the English, defected to the Scottish side, whereas his cousin, Robert, the Earl of Angus, remained loyal to Edward II. And then the custodian of Stirling Castle, Philip de Mowbray, who had defended it against Robert the Bruce's army, also then went on to defect to the Scottish side. He was also a Scotsman at the time. So it is this sort of very messy division of loyalties rather than, as I said before, England versus Scotland. And you wrote actually in a recent BBC History magazine article that Bannockburn had consequences, not just in England and Scotland, but Ireland as well, which was quite an interesting point. Can you explain how the battle changed all three of these nations, particularly Ireland, because we haven't touched on that? That's a good question. So... So after the Battle of Bannockburn, I mean, the major impact was obviously the north of England, because that was a frontier zone, and and Robert the Bruce really doubled down on the people living in the north. But there was a slight pause in that period of raiding when he turned his attentions to Ireland. And he tried to forge a sort of Celtic alliance in Ireland. And he sent his brother, Edward Bruce, over to Ireland, where he was then nominally called High King, in the hope that between the two countries they could fight back against the English. And, you know, they, they really did get quite far. They were quite successful at times. But for many different reasons, it didn't work out. Predominantly, just after the Battle of Bannockburn was a period of great environmental disaster in Northern Europe, known as the Great Famine. And that massively affected the campaigns in Ireland to the point where they weren't able to fight men starved. And Edward Bruce just he lost a huge amount of men and then he was eventually killed in battle. So that was largely against the English factions in Ireland, the English earls that had been placed in Ireland to not as much colonise, but just control Ireland because Ireland was already nominally colonised by the English at this point already. But they did try to create the sense of unity between Scotland and Ireland. And there was even links into Wales as well to try and get the, you know, the allies together against the English, but it just didn't quite work out for multiple reasons. 
Mm-hmm. So whilst Robert the Bruce obviously won the Battle of Bannockburn, English agreement to Scottish independence didn't happen until I think 14 years later. Why did it take another 14 years for that to happen? Yeah, well, good question. I think it took that long because so much of the unrest was actually focused on England itself. This was a time of massive baronial rebellion and it didn't happen till later on because Well, Edward II was on the throne and it was only after his deposition that that was able to happen. And it certainly wouldn't have happened under Edward II, whose father literally has on his tomb, hammer of the Scots, keep troth. You know, he wanted to be eulogised for being able to take Scotland and successfully defeat the Scots and successfully control the North and the Scots. So for his son to be able to concede in that manner was just never going to happen. So it didn't happen until much later on when there needed to be peace with Scotland between Isabella and Roger Mortimer, who were, you know, effectively regents of England at the time, in order to enhance their own political agenda and campaign. But the lead up to that point, the reason why it was left that long is because Edward wasn't really focusing on Scotland. He was focusing on the issues that he was facing in England, you know, his his consistency with favourites, the fact that his barons really struggled with him, they hated him, there was all this baronial rebellion, he eventually had his own cousin executed after the Battle of Boroughbridge. England itself was a mess, so to be able to apply attentions to Scotland was just not an option. And it was really around this period that the raiding of the north of England was at its absolute worst, because he effectively annexed the north of England. He just didn't do anything about it. Whereas Robert the Bruce kept raiding the North and people were paying him off to leave them alone. He made huge amounts of money by tributes, by people living in these in towns and villages across the north of England, Durham, Carlisle, across the north, paying him huge amounts of money just to leave them alone and to to keep them protected from this raiding. So he was becoming very rich and successful and Edward less so. Mm-hmm. And it's fair to say today, probably, that Bannockburn is one of the most celebrated battles in Scottish history. How has its legacy been recast through history? Has there been any sort of changes at all? Well, I think it's it's certainly been romanticised, hasn't it, in popular depictions of it and obviously poetic depictions of it. It was this great moment of Scottish martial glory. It was a David and Goliath moment, or was it? You know, it was the moment that shaped the course of Scottish history thereafter. So I think it's reasonable that it has been cast as this this great martial victory for the Scots. I think it was, there are many reasons for that, that wasn't just a case of the Scottish being this brilliant force of arms. I think that it was really the fecklessness of the English that made it such. But I think it has, yeah, it has been, it has, I suppose, been wrapped up in the sense of Scottish national identity and patriotism and and why not, I suppose. It was their moment of historic glory and the moment that Robert the Bruce was really cast as this this national hero. Mm -hmm. And then just some final questions now as we're nearing the end. What are the enduring myths about the battle that we still have today that you'd like to debunk, if any? (laughs) No, there are definitely some myths about it. Okay, so... I think the fact that the Scots are massively outnumbered, we don't really know. We can have a rough guess, but it's not its not sort of set in stone that it was this thousands and thousands of English cavalry against a very small army of Scots. It wasn't quite like that. 
I don't think the disparity was as big as that. I mean, it, it, they was, had a, certainly had a smaller army, but I don't think the disparity was as huge as it has been demonstrated. Also, the fact that they had been training for a really, really long time. This wasn't sort of a surprise battle that the Scots found themselves in and then just managed to win. They had been training for this moment and I think they wanted a battle, but they also didn't fight again. You know, after Bannockburn, it's not like there wasn't any more opportunity for battle. The English certainly tried to lure the Scots into battle again, but Robert the Bruce very much stayed away from that. He knew that given the opportunity again, I mean, look what happened with Stirling Bridge and then Falkirk. If the English were able to understand what their what their tactics had been, they could come back stronger and better. So I think I think it really was a a one off. It was well thought through by Robert the Bruce, and I think it was a it was a case of tactics really paying off. I'd also think that it should be debunked that Gilbert de Clare, who was the Earl of Gloucester, who famously threw himself onto the shiltrons of the Scots, the, the spikes of the Scots. He was the king's nephew. And he did charge in as the head of the vanguard, and he was sort of butchered on the pikes of the Scots. But he was doing that because the way the shiltrons were made to be offensive meant that the cavalry on the English side was penned in and they couldn't break through, they couldn't charge as you need to do as as cavalry in order to be effective. So what he did bravely was he he tried, he threw himself into it because he was trying to break the Shiltrons up to enable the English cavalry to charge and also for the archers to be able to break through and employ their skill in battle with their longbows. And then lastly, I would probably say that Robert the Bruce from the outset was this wannabe Scottish king who got his chance and then became this national hero and patriot. Because, as I said before, during this period, it was a case of a lot of side changing. And Robert the Bruce certainly changed sides more than once. It was a community of English and Scottish lords. And it was political allegiance rather than ethnicity or nationality or patriotism that made people make those choices. And I don't think that he envisaged himself as a patriotic king. I think that was just the way things turned out for him. So I think it's really important. And I think the lead thing I would want people to take away from this information is that England and Scotland in the late 13th and early 14th century was a community of an amalgamation of English and Scottish people. There was no way of necessarily differentiating them. It's not like you didn't have people with a Scottish dialect fighting for the English at Bannockburn. So it wasn't so much a battle between England and Scotland. It was a battle of political allegiance. That was Helen Carr. For more from Helen, visit historyextra.com forward slash Bannockburn to read her latest article on the battle for BBC History magazine, in which Helen explains in more depth how the Battle of Bannockburn transformed the balance of power between not only two, but three warring nations. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.